Well, I wonder, Christmas is coming up, I wonder if there's someone on your list that you have real trouble buying presents for. You just can't think of anything. Maybe they already have everything. Uh, or, or maybe there's someone who is so precious to you that a gift just doesn't measure up. There's no gift you can give which says thank you in a way that is uh, fitting. When I think about that, it's my dad. Uh, if he wants something, he just goes and buys it. So there's, there's pretty much nothing left that he actually wants. Occasionally I'll find something that he needs and that, or that he'd enjoy. Uh, I read a good theology book that he doesn't have or I see a DVD set of a new series that he likes. But what's even better than me guessing is when he tells me what he'd want for his birthday or Christmas. Uh, it spoils the surprise, but for both of us we prefer it because he gets something he needs rather than something that just sits in a cupboard. But what about God? How do you say thank you to God who's given us everything? Uh, what present can we give God to say thank you for all of that? Uh, and turn it around, what does he need from us? He's entirely self-sufficient. What's missing from his cupboard? What book's not on his shelf? Well, here's the good news. Just like my dad, God tells us what he wants. He tells us how to say thank you. Uh, Exodus 19, verse 3. Neil read it for us earlier. God has led Israel through the desert. They arrive at the foot of Mount Sinai and God has a message for Moses. He says, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. Verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So firstly, God reminds Moses about all that he's done for Israel. And then he says what he expects in return. It's obedience. Obedience. And it's no different for us. We say thank you to God for saving us by obeying him out of gratitude in response to his grace. We saw that last week. Grace comes first, we respond with gratitude. But what do we obey? Well, the good news is we don't have to guess. Once again, God tells us, he gives us his law so that we know what to obey. We have no excuse. We can't say, oh, but I never knew. Nobody told me. Well, God has told us. And that's what we see from chapter 20 of Exodus onwards. Chapter after chapter about how God wants his people to obey him. And it covers every aspect of life. It begins with how to treat God, how to worship him. It moves on to how you're to do business. It goes right down to what you're to do if you find your neighbour's donkey. From the huge to the small. And as God's people obey him in every area of life, three things happen. Firstly, they learn about the holiness of God. Secondly, they show gratitude to God. And thirdly, they show the world how great God is. So we're going to look at those three things this morning. So firstly, obedience means learning about God's holiness. Uh, the thing that stands out in chapter 19, I don't know whether it stood out to you, but it did to me, is how holy and different God is. 
and the requirement for the people to get ceremonially clean, to prepare themselves before they come anywhere near a God like that. The point is, people are sinful and God's not. To approach a pure, holy God is not something you can do easily or lightly. It's a little like preparing to enter a nuclear reactor. It's a big deal to come into God's presence. He is pure, dangerous, white-hot holiness. Uh, Just look from verse 10 of chapter 19. God tells Moses, have the people consecrate themselves, purify themselves and their clothes. Someone in home group on Friday night wondered how a million people got enough water to wash all their clothes. But, you know, we're not told. They did. They washed their clothes. And it's not something you can just do quickly. Do it today. Do it tomorrow. And verse 11 says, be ready on the third day. Because on that day, the Lord will come down to Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Verse 12, set up a safe perimeter around the mountain. This is OH&S around a holy God, so people don't touch it. Verse 13, make sure that you only move closer when the ram horn sounds, when it's safe. And that's what the people did. Uh, We pick it up from verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Then Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and Moses called, uh, and, Mo- and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up and the Lord said to him, Go down and warn the people so that they do not force their way through to see the Lord and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves or the Lord will break out against them. Now that really does sound like what you do around a nuclear reactor, doesn't it? It was an awesome thing to come before the God of the universe. You can only come anywhere near him at his request according to his rules of approach. Point one, in the law we learn about God's holiness. How foolish people are to think they have the right to come to God any way they please. That he's somehow like your neighbour or your best friend who you can just drop in on unannounced and ask a favour of. How foolish. Even as Christians, we can take that access as for granted. We feel we've got the right to approach him because we've read our Bible every day this week or because we've given money to missionaries or because we serve in a ministry that qualifies us to approach God. The reality is we serve the same awesome, holy God as Israel did that we see here. 
We don't get to approach him any more easily on the basis of our, our own qualification. But we, but we can only do it because Jesus has made the way. Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. He is the priest. He is the sacrifice. He is the temple. He is the curtain into the most holy place. This description of God's dangerous, white-hot holiness should drive us to rejoice in gratitude for what Jesus has done. To shake our heads in amazement that we can boldly approach the throne of grace of a God like this through what Jesus has done. What an enormous thing that was. What a cost to cleanse us, to satisfy the wrath of a holy God like this so that we could stand before him clean and pure and welcome. Compare the fear that the people felt at this picture to the encouragement we have to approach God in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, not by our own merit, but by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. How amazing is that? Praise God for Jesus and the access we have to the holy God. Well, firstly, the law shows us God's holiness. Secondly, obeying the law shows our gratitude. All the way through Exodus, we've seen that order of things. God acts and expects a response. He shows grace and expects gratitude. It's the same here at the start of chapter 19. We read it earlier, do you remember? You yourselves have seen what I did, how I carried you and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. God reminds Israel what he's done and then tells them how to respond. It's the same thing in chapter 20. How do the Ten Commandments begin? Verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. He begins by declaring who he is and what he's done and then tells us what we should do in response. Now this is the very opposite of every other world religion. Every other world religion says you earn your way to God. It's the complete opposite of what most people think Christianity is about. You do things for God, then he saves you because you earn it. And even Christians, it's the complete opposite of what many people think is happening here. They think the New Testament, that's where we read about grace. The Old Testament is about law. Grace, what God's done for us. The law, what we do for God. If I obey the Ten Commandments, God will accept me. But that's not what's going on. It's upside-down thinking. The whole Bible is about grace first. 
God always made people his children simply because of grace. Obeying him is always a response of grateful appreciation of grace. Look at chapter 20, verse 10, for example, the Sabbath command. The seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord. We rest in gratitude, in thanks that's directed towards God. Now all of this is exactly the same for Christians. The New Testament is full of examples about how we respond in gratitude to God's grace. One example, Romans chapter 12, verse 1. We've just had 11 chapters explaining the gospel, what God has done for us. That's a simplification, but it's not bad. 11 chapters of grace. And then we get to chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercies, everything you've just read, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. God shows us mercy, and then in view of his mercy, we offer our bodies. We obey in response to his grace. Or Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 to 10. For it's by grace you've been saved through faith. And this, the faith, it's not from yourself. It's the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance. One, God saved us. And then two, he calls us to do the good works he's prepared. We're not saved by our works, we're saved for our works, for good works. And I reckon when you view works as gratitude to God, it completely transforms the way you approach the law, the way you approach obeying God. It sets you free. It sets you free from performance anxiety because it's no longer about your performance, it's about your gratitude, about your heart. There's no stressing about whether this week you're sitting on 70% or, or 20% or 40% because you're doing it out of gratitude for God who's already saved you and for what Jesus has already performed. So that's point two. In obeying the law, we show our gratitude to God. Third point about the law. Obedience shows the world how wonderful God is. Go back to chapter 19, verse 6 again. If you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. The Hebrew says, because the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Because the whole earth is mine, you will be a kingdom of priests. So, Israel was called to obey, and that 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 meant they would be a kingdom of priests. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean to be a kingdom of priests? Well, a priest's job was to stand in between God and man. He was the in-betweener. He was the introduction agency, introducing men to God and representing men before God, representing God before men. Now, God wants all the nations to be introduced to him because they're his. They belong to him. It's because the whole earth is God's He wants to set apart a kingdom of priests who can represent him before the world. God 
values his world, his creation so highly, he wants a kingdom of priests who can represent him. It's what God promised way back with Abram, back in Genesis chapter 12. He said to one man, I will make you into a great nation and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. The nation that would come from your body was going to be a means of blessing the world. Well, how would a nation do that? How would they act as priests? Well, verse 5 tells us, by obeying God fully, by keeping his covenant. Verse 6 says that they fulfil their calling to be a kingdom of priests to the whole earth as they obey. Well, how does that work? Well, over in Deuteronomy chapter 4, which is the other description of the Ten Commandments, it spells out in a bit more detail how obedience connects with proclaiming God to the nations around. So verse 5 of Deuteronomy 4 says this, Moses speaking to the people. See, I've taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me so that you may follow them in the land you're entering to take possession of it. Observe them carefully. Why? For this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them, the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? What other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I'm setting before you today? God's given us his law, and as Israel obeyed that law, the other nations noticed, and they said, wow, look at how well society works in Israel. It's really got its act together. If they can show justice and mercy to one another like that, imagine how just and merciful their God must be. Obeying God's law declares his goodness to the nations. If you flip back over to Exodus in in chapters 20 through to 23, uh, we see some laws about how they're to treat God, to to do with worshipping and idols and altars. And they're really important, but the majority of the laws are about how people treat each other. Chapter after chapter of how people should deal with each other. And it's a pretty attractive picture. If people really did treat one another like that, then society would be a great place. The whole tone of these chapters is not about loading great burdens onto people's backs. Yes, they're commands, but another way of viewing them is that it's a vision of God's preferred future. In some senses, it's it's aspirational and envisioning. It's describing paradise. Live like this. If you actually looked after the interests of others, then imagine what this society would look like. Make sure your animals are tied up. Make sure your veranda is fenced off. Look after slaves and widows and orphans. Don't accept interest on loans. If you take a man's cloak as security, make sure he gets it back at night because you're other person-centred. It's not all about you. If people live like that, then it would be just the way God created things in the beginning with all relationships in harmony with man at peace with man, at peace with creation, at peace with God. It'd be paradise. 
These laws are not burdens for you to bear, but an aspiration for how society works best with people's rights protected. And God says, this is my gift for you. And Jesus, I think, is doing a very similar thing in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus stands at the end of a long line of prophets who for hundreds of years have been calling people back to obeying God's law. In Matthew chapter 5, he says he hasn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfil it. He says he hasn't come to get rid of anything from the law. Not the least dot is going to disappear from God's law. In many ways, he intensifies. He makes it even harder to keep. He talks about a number of the Ten Commandments. He says murder. When you become angry with someone, you're murdering them in your heart. Adultery. It's not just the act. A lustful thought is adultery. Or some other favourites. Divorce. Yes, the law... uh, permitted divorce, but it wasn't an excuse for you to just change your wife whenever you felt like it. The law's there to protect the rights of the weak. He zooms in on another favourite law, an eye for an eye, Matthew 5 verse 38. was used as as an excuse for revenge, to get back at someone who'd hurt you, but God's law was originally given to limit Vengeance. It was there to protect people's rights. And Jesus flips it around and he said, uh, an eye for an eye is so other person-centred, it needs to be turning the other cheek. That's what the law's there for. Just imagine if people lived like this, if we lived like the Sermon on the Mount. He finishes chapter 5, Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. If we actually lived like that, society would be life at its best. Now, if we actually could, I think the world would take notice, wouldn't they? If our church, if our denomination, if our suburb lived like this, the world would notice. Jesus takes up God's call for his people to be a kingdom of priests when he says in Matthew 5.13... You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Live out God's justice and mercy so people will notice that you'll be a kingdom of priests. If Israel would obey God's law, if they do it from the heart, if they put others first, then the nations would notice. Now that's just as true for us as the church as it was for Israel. Israel never did it very well, but uh, 1 Peter chapter 2 that I began our service with, Peter he grabs that language from Exodus 19 and he reapplies it for us as a church. He says, But you, church, are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. That's us. We're a holy nation. We're to be separate and pure. But we're also to be a royal priesthood. We're to represent God to the world. We're to be not of the world, but we're also to be in the world. 
to be in the world, we're to stand between men and God and declare God's praises to people, introducing them to the God who can call them out of darkness. How are we to do that? Well, if we keep reading in 1 Peter chapter 2, we do it by obeying God's law. Peter says, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. That's the negative, what you're not to do. And here's the positive, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. If we live like that, we will stand out. Our neighbours will want to be part of us. They'll want to become God's people too. That's a challenge, isn't it? But as a church, our lives would be so other person-centred, so full of joy and gratitude to God that people will want what we've got. God's law is his gift to his people. We learn about his holiness in it. As we obey, we show him gratitude. And we also show the world what a great God we serve. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, you've spoken to us today. Uh, Help us to hear. Help us to appreciate your holiness. Help us to appreciate uh, what Jesus has achieved in giving us confidence to draw near to you, to cleanse us from sin, to cleanse our hearts. Uh, Help us to live out our gratitude to you as we obey you. Uh, Help us to represent you well to the world, that we might be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a people who belong to you, who declare the praises of the one who's called us out of darkness into light. Amen.